Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we watched 1936's Anthony Adverse, starring Frederick March. And, wow, was it a mess. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's too early to, like, call in our yearly black card again and just like have me tell you all about into the spider-verse but god i want to i want to so bad i mean wasn't into the spider-verse nominated for an academy award i don't think for best picture i think best animated yeah no not not for best picture though like amazing if that happened yeah i mean i'm not i'm not i'm not averse not adverse to talking about this movie. I mean, here's the thing. As much as I disliked this movie, if we're doing that, then what I am saying is we are barely, we're like, we're not even a third of the way through the year. Are we really going to- Are we not? I, I mean, through the second year. I don't, I don't. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Through the second year of the project, not of 1936. Yes, I was like, it... I thought we were pretty much closing in oh, on it. Oh no, no, no. And I got really freaked out. No, I mean, like, if we if we pull this now, then that's a bet that we're making that another movie will not frustrate us this badly for the rest of 2019. And you know, yeah, yeah, that's a major gamble. Also, I have to be upfront that I didn't. I don't think I hated this movie as much as you did. And part of it, well, most of it was that I went into it knowing that this was the lowest rated best picture nominee on Rotten Tomatoes. So I was, you know, comparing it to the absolute worst movies that we've watched. And I feel like we've watched, like I can name off the top of my head, five movies that we've watched that were worse than this yeah i mean like let's let's just get this out of the way the reason this is the absolute lowest rated is the middle third of this film our protagonist decides to become a slave trader for vague convenience and i mean fair like fair that it's rated lowly because of that but like how is the movie that shall not be named rated higher than this because that movie is somehow more racist than this movie (laughs) I think there's people who, like, are are just kind of into the way that these movies are kind of a mess to us. And so we'll kind of forgive it unless there's something as blatant as this. And it's just there's no way to get around that Anthony Adverse is a moral fucking monster. And everything bad that happens to him should be worse things that happen to him. I feel like, yes... The movie that shall not be named is arguably even more racist than this one, but it's just such a like you you know you can't do that one, right? Like some like there like nobody is going to try and get away with that. It's it's some people are still going to try and get away with like oh the times it's all right, but even the times it's like this guy no being a slave trader is not like yeah it's not okay there's no like well back in the day put it in context it's like no even in movies where like owning slaves 
is portrayed in a way that is kind of, I don't know, morally excusable. I wouldn't say like good. Being the person who sells them is still reprehensible. Right. They were the official scapegoat that made slavery okay. Like at least I'm not a slave trader. (laughs) Right. I might own them, but I didn't sell them. And it's like that. Okay. That's a fine. You got me. Slave traders are worse. You're still a piece of shit. However, (laughs) explaining the plot of this movie is um, uh, almost an exercise in futility because it's so, hmm, it is the kind of thing where like, who cares? Right. The first 20 minutes of this is a prologue that is so non-critical to the plot, it's arguably a shaggy dog story. It is our main character's origin story, and yet his part in it is like literally he's a little he's a little baby. I, I mean, literally, he's not even conceived yet for the first like ten minutes. <laughs> right, and like then that whole section also like moves so fast. I like texted you that this was not another '30s historical movie. It reads as parody for huge sweeps of this movie because it shorthands so much shit. It's like, yeah, 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 you get it. This guy's fat and he has gout. He's evil. It's fine. Let's go, go, go. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of how, how they do it. Basically, his origin is his mother, who is, you know, of course, beautiful and delicate and blonde and played by Anita Louise, who was Titania in A Midsummer Night's Dream, marries some Spanish nobleman whose name is Don Luis, played by Claude Rains. They go to, like, Germany? Somewhere where there's, like, baths that you take in the 18th century to try to cure you of gout or whatever, And her soldier boyfriend, who she was in love with before she got married, follows them while he's going to the baths every day to treat his gout. She's off banging him in the woods. The weird part about all of this to me is like by the end of this little prologue section, the the Marquis has established that he is super duper evil. But at the start of it, you don't know the circumstances of their marriage. All you know is that his wife is fucking around on him. Yeah, he actually doesn't seem evil at the beginning. Yeah, like, it's never established that she was forced into the marriage against her will. She just got married and cheated on her husband. Also, the guy she's cheating on is super handsome, and the, like, the her husband is a marquee. So definitely it's fine, morally. <laughs> <laughs> So, of course, when he finds out that she's cheating on him, he packs her and her maid up and they, like, go across the Alps or whatever. The boyfriend tracks them down. They get into a duel in a pub. The Marquis kills the soldier in arguably the silliest sword fight I have ever seen. Yep. Another thing that reads totally like a parody. It totally does! Because, like, even the stuff with, uh... Uh, what's his name? Swashbuckler. Errol Flynn in Captain Blood, which was like very awkward fight choreography, was so much more believable than this. So then Maria dies giving birth somewhere in the Alps. (laughs) And so Don Luis gives the baby away in this like, basically like an orphan ATM that accepts deposits at a convent. Yeah. He just puts the baby in, closes the door, and then, like, turns it 
So I guess no one ever knows who drops off the baby. The weirdest part of it is that after you've established that they have this mechanism for dropping off your baby, all the nuns are like, you know we can't keep babies here. And it's like, well, maybe <laughs> don't have a baby shoot, for Christ's sake. Like, <laughs> I... <laughs> really does seem like false advertising, you know? <laughs> the issue is that it's a boy baby, and they're like, oh, well, we can't have, like, male babies at the convent because we also are a girls school but it doesn't specify on the thing like only assigned female at birth children please anyway he grows up in the convent despite all of this for some reason <laughs> and then the priest who also lives at the convent so it's kind of they're kind of fast and loose with this like no male-bodied people at the <laughs> convent yeah for sure but it seems like there's a wall and all of the men have to stay behind the wall whenever school is in session but also they don't yeah like it's very it's very weird it seems to just be this rule that exists so that anthony can break it and they can go he's gotta leave he broke the rule yeah essentially so when he's 10 i think the priest takes him to be apprenticed to this guy named Bonnie Feather, who is a merchant. And on the way to the merchant's house, a bunch of street children, like, strip Anthony of his clothes for no reason. Other than, like, I guess it's funny that he shows up naked. <laughs> it's really uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. So yeah, he goes and apprentices with this merchant, who is actually his real grandfather, because he lost his daughter somewhere in the Alps, where she died giving birth to a child, who also definitely died and was not put in an orphan ATM. What's really weird about this is that the grandfather immediately figures it out, and then goes, he can never know. And it's like, the reason why is like, his life's going to be tough. And it's like, what? That doesn't, anyway. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. <laughs> and then they literally, after deciding to make his life infinitely more difficult, also decide to name him Adverse, which can't be helping matters. <laughs> then we cut to Anthony being an adult, where he has fallen in love with, like, the maid's daughter, whose name is Angela, played by Olivia de Havilland, and they get married, but that same day, Bodyfeather asks Anthony to go to Havana because they need money, and there's, like, people in Cuba who have a really big debt to Bonnyfeather. He goes to Havana, and then for reasons that are completely inexplicable... The weirdest part is it's explicable. They don't even, like, hand wave it. They very specifically go, like, oh, you want to collect the debt from this company. The only thing left of this company is a slave trading outpost in Africa. Now, you could just start a new business and earn money that way. No, that'll take slightly longer. I will go to Africa and become a slave trader. Yeah, I guess what's inexplicable is that he does that for three years. Instead of just going and being like, hey, slave traders, you owe us a bunch of money. Give us the money. Yeah, and then, like, gets so into it that he's like, I'm going to keep going to make more money that I don't need, that I have no use for in the world. So he goes to Africa to 
become a slave trader and apparently takes on a slave girl as his lover, though we'll get into this, but this movie has some of the most confused racial portrayals I've ever seen. Like, there's a debate to be had whether it's blackface or worse. Yeah, it's very, very fucked up. Anyway, he becomes friends with some priest who is against slave trading, which, you know, at least uh, the missionaries were doing one good thing while they were there. The monk gets killed. And so Anthony is like, oh, well, now I have to leave because I need to live my life like the monk who thought slave trading was bad. He also gets this monk killed. Yeah. Pretty directly. And the monk's, like, last words are, like, absolving Anthony of all of his sins because he feels bad and has decided to not trade slaves anymore. Yeah. This guy just killed you, my dude. Also, like, I'm gonna live my life like the monk is not just not being a slave trader. The guy was, like, saving people's lives. And stayed in Africa. (laughs) He just goes back to Italy and is like, I'm sure this will work itself out. So he goes back to Italy to try to find Body Feather and finds out from the woman who was his mother's maid who went to work for Bonnie Feather after the mom died. I thought she was always Bonnie Feather's maid. I don't know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, she was originally and then she went to be Maria's maid and then went back. Is from what was what I understand, but maybe I was wrong. Maybe the woman at the beginning who was Maria's maid was a different person. I think it was, but I don't know because I definitely remember when she shows up at Bonnie Feather's house when Don Louis is like, "Your daughter's dead, your grandson's dead." Peace. I remember thinking like, "Who's this lady?" Oh, okay. <laughs> but maybe she was just wearing a different outfit. Anyway, the housekeeper whose name is Faith. And is played by Gail Sondergaard, really giving it her all as a fucking Disney villain stepmom. Oh yeah, she's auditioning for Cruella DeVille 30 years early. And like, good, she has the part. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She's been Don Luis's spy in the house, which we know, this is not news to the audience. But she has inherited Bonnie Feather's fortune because Anthony basically wasn't around to inherit it. And so he goes to Paris for some reason to claim his inheritance. I don't know why he goes to Paris to get it, but whatever. It's implied, I guess it's because this part of Italy is now under the control of Napoleon. But like, they definitely don't make that super clear. There's just like a part before he goes to Havana where his friend that's there for two scenes of the whole damn movie is like, Napoleon sure sucks. Yep, sure does. He's headed this way. Yep. (laughs) And then like, I guess you just assume like this is the Italian campaign of Napoleon's life was in here somewhere. But also like Napoleon was really good at, if nothing else, he was very good at government bureaucracy. I'm pretty sure they would have had courts in... (laughs) Any place that he was occupying, but whatever. I'm also not sure the timeline checks out for like when Napoleon took over Italy versus when he's the well-established emperor of France, but whatever. It's fine. This movie is a mess, so like trying to actually slap any historical realism requirements on it is pointless. Uh, Anyway, so he goes to Paris, where also Don Luis and Faith have beaten him to Paris and have told the customs guards that there's going to be some guy named Anthony Adverse who's traveling there and his passport is definitely fake, which results in Anthony Adverse being arrested, walked into some building. I don't even know what it is. 
is. And his friend, whose name is Nolte, played by Donald Woods, once again playing a generically handsome dude in the 18th century. <laughs> or early 19th, whatever. Same, same difference. Whatever he was playing in Great Expectations, he's doing it again. And basically going, wait a minute, that's my pal. And then, like, no harm, no foul, everything's fine. Right. The commander also specifically goes, like, wait, you weren't suspicious of the obviously evil-looking Spanish marquee coming through and just telling you something? That's way more suspicious than there's a guy he's gonna have a passport. <laughs> And the soldier's like, yeah, oh yeah, I guess I am an idiot. And then that's the end of that. And then in a moment that I in no way remember how this all happened, Anthony does find out that Angela is in Paris and that she has had a son, which, I mean, they got married in the morning and he left for Havana in the afternoon. So like- I was about to say, it's not his kid, right? I'm really like 90% certain that's not his kid. Yeah. And she's like, oh, I'm a famous opera singer. And then we find out when he goes to see her sing in Paris that she is Mademoiselle Georges, who historically was the mistress of Napoleon. She leaves a note for him just being like, hey, you would be a better parent for our kid who has known you for a day than me, who has known him for all of his life. But he's been really cock-blocking me with the Emperor lately, so take him to America, <laughs> bye. And then they go to America. Or that they get on a ship to go to America. The end of this incredibly confusing... Well, it's not even confusing, it's just nonsensical movie. Our characters' actions are never consistent, never have any effect on anything, and nothing that happens at any point matters. Yeah, they never have any justification. It's literally a minute and a half before the end of the movie when, like, you get to the setup for the end of the movie. Like, it's never suggested he's gonna build a new life with this kid. The reasoning for why he's even going to America is a thing he disagrees with, but then she gives him a note and he's like, well, I guess I'll just do it and take this kid. End of film. It's a total mess. And apparently critics at the time also thought that it was a mess and specifically criticized it for not being as good as the book. I have to believe, well, I don't have to, but I choose to believe since I'm not going to read a thousand page book between watching this movie and recording this podcast, that there must be some kind of character development that explains Anthony's like otherwise inexplicable choice to stay in Africa and become a slave trader. Yeah, so much of this is just, oh, it was in the book is why 90% of this film happens. And apparently this is only the first third of the book. Good God. Yeah, or the first part. I don't know how many parts there are. <laughs> but it's long. That makes sense, because as an ending, it's just such a weird anticlimax of nothing. Like, take this kid no one involved cares about seemingly a single tiny bit, and go to America and make a semi-inspirational speech about it? <laughs> And so, like, oh, there's a whole other part where he, like, bonds with the kid and they build a life in America. And he, like, actually learns a lesson and anything that's happened to him at any point comes to something. 
makes a lot of sense. I don't necessarily want to work backward, but I think it's such a synecdoche for the whole movie that, hey, your mom left a note saying I should take you to America. Do you want to go? That the kid's reaction is, well, I hadn't really thought about it, but sure, you're going to be my dad, so it's fine. And I'm like, there is no fucking way that that would be the reaction of a four-year-old child being torn away from his mother to get on a boat to go across the ocean and never see her again with a man that he met earlier that day. In his defense, Angela really sucks. <laughs> uh, does she? I mean, kind of. She leaves a note. She's like, I can't wait any longer on the day she got married and just like sticks a note to a wall and doesn't even pay attention to it long enough to see it blow off in the breeze 10 seconds later. Oh, right. That says like, I'm going on tour with the opera company. It's kind of bad enough that the way she decides to reveal, like she doesn't even reveal she's sleeping with Napoleon. She just goes, come to my show. I'm sure he'll figure it out if he comes to the show. And, like, makes him listen to a whole bunch of gossip to figure it out. And you're like, well, that's kind of shitty. But, like, I guess I get not being brave enough to, oh, you left a note and your child. Yeah, you're right. Angela really sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't even really remember anything about her. Nope, you're right. She sucks. Yeah. So, I... Things that are good about this movie, because uh, there are some positive things to be said about, not about the movie necessarily, but things that, uh, things that happen because of the movie. <laughs> Anthony Adverse sounds fun to say out loud, for instance. <laughs> That's in its favor. Frederick March, bless his heart, is playing the shit out of a terribly written role. He really tries to sell every single decision that makes absolutely no sense that Anthony Adverse makes for no reason. And since there's no progress of his character, it's just like, okay, now for this period, you are this way. And for this period, you are this way. And like, he definitely does, you know, wide-eyed and sort of optimistic and sweet and shy, hardworking, whatever, when he's first an adult. And then he totally plays like, alcoholic, worn out, pessimistic, faithless slave trader when that's necessary. And like kind and sweet father who understands that Angela has done what she's had to do to survive. But there's no curve. These are just like spots on a graph. It really directly, that's not his fault. No, it's the writing. <laughs> yeah, all character development in this movie is people announcing to Anthony how he's changed. You seem like a man who's no longer tied to material possessions and, own and has learned what the real value of life is. Yes, I have. It's love. I must find Angela. <laughs> but, you know, he commits to the bit and he plays whatever it is that someone has just told him is his new character. <laughs> yeah. Claude Rains and Gail Sondergaard as Don Luis and Faith the housekeeper, are in a totally different movie where they are evil, scheming, money-grubbing villains. And I want to see that movie because they're amazing. I kind of wish they played the villains in all the Dickens adaptations we've seen. Oh, absolutely. They could chew the scenery like nobody else. <laughs> Olivia de Havilland is fine. Anita Louise still is kind of a boring nothing. Yeah, but she also dies, so like, who cares? Right. Is She's kind of supposed to be more in this. It's still like, who, her, is she funny or something? <laughs> 
Father Xavier, is that the one who's the priest at the convent? Yeah. Father Xavier is really doing a very good job with, again, a completely nonsensical character. He's got that, like, warm and fatherly religious figure thing down. And, uh... I think I've exhausted absolutely everything that is good about this film. I I had not... The score! The score is nice. The score is nice. Some of the costumes are okay. Occasionally there's a good set. Really, to me, so much clicked into place when you told me this wasn't the full novel. I had not realized that. This is a coming-of-age novel about a man learning to be a morally consistent, upright person in an unjust and chaotic world that doesn't get to that part because that's the back half of the book. And even this part of it that they did film feels so rushed. Mm -hmm. It's like we just watched the kid part of David Copperfield. Of course it sucks. Why would you do that? And like, the answer is they don't know how to pace things correctly and spend just shit tons of time on stuff that never comes to anything. And maybe it does in the novel. Maybe this is like the first example of that thing where it's like, this is going to be the breakout YA series and there's going to be four Anthony Adverse movies. (laughs) Oh, shit. But they didn't do that, which doesn't surprise me because this movie (laughs) wasn't very good. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that, though, because there are definitely little scenes in this movie that are interesting or even like funny or entertaining that then have absolutely no consequences like angela's dad who is the butler for bonnie feather and her mom is the cook angela's dad wins the lottery Mm -hmm. and he comes wasted to the gates of the bonnie feather castle at night being like i won the lottery suck it assholes And Angela's like, oh, no, now we can never get married because my dad will go and drink all of the money away. And I I don't know why it means that they'll never get married. And then he has a parade for himself where each of his children gets their own carriage in the parade. And he has 10 of them who somehow are all roughly seven. Like every single one of them except Angela is seven. Yeah. Which like bless that poor mother's entire being for that. But that, it never comes up again. Like, it's it's funny, but it has no bearing on Angela as a character. It has no bearing on the plot, such as there is one. And this movie is a lot of those moments. I mean, like, there's the whole sequence where Father Xavier, like, explains morality and character to him. And then he goes and becomes a slave trader and gets on a boat. And it's like, that's his moral journey? The answer is no, it isn't. That's just like, that's all the moral journey that you got. Right. So much of this is set up with no delivery. Or or delivery with no setup. <laughs> like why he chooses to stay and, and become a slave trader for three years. Yeah. Which, let's dig into the most egregious part of this movie. Oh, Christ, right. We didn't really talk about the white woman playing the monstrous slave girl that he's taken into his bed. So, first of all, the setting for what is supposed to be Africa is actually the set that they used for Captain Blood to be Port Royal in the Bahamas. Because I was like, why does it just look like, I mean, it's palm trees and it it looks like, uh, it, it looks like the Bahamas. It doesn't in any way look like any part of West Africa. The slaves are played by black actors. The slave traders 
are supposed to be Muslim people who I guess are like Moroccan-ish. Everyone is portrayed in the most gross, widely sketched caricature you can imagine. And then there's the slave girl. I mean, first of all, she at best looks like a white girl with a spray tan. She was born in Hungary, Wikipedia tells me. And she has an Eastern European accent in this movie. Yeah. And then she plots against Anthony while he has, like, the flu... I guess. Or malaria, or it's never really, I mean, again, never really talked about. He gets over it so quickly, I'm like, is he just- Maybe as a hangover. Yeah, I genuinely considered that <laughs> as a real possibility. And then when the deception is revealed, he like literally calls her an inhuman animal. And that like, by extension, says like, all of the non-white people here- are inhuman animals, and that that's the moral problem, is that he has surrounded himself with these subhumans. And it is fucking so bad. It's real bad. And I understand that the reason that they cast a white woman is because of the Hayes Code prohibition of miscegenation, but it's not even clear, to be honest, in the movie that they're sleeping together. She's basically wearing, like, what tourists wear when they go to Tahiti on spring break. Yeah. Like a sarong and a, a tied-up little, like, halter thing. She looks exactly like the Polynesian women from Mutiny on the Bounty. Absolutely. Who were also racist. It's like they took the outfit. Well, I mean, they took the set, so they probably, you know... Yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised. It isn't clear from a contemporary perspective, at least, that one, they're sleeping together, or two, that she's even black, since she has an Eastern European accent and she looks white to me. And then he goes on this whole thing about like how she's a, an evil animal. And yet the movie also wants to have it two ways, which is that treating black people poorly is actually subhuman and that the monk, Brother Francois, who is saving people from slavery or from death, because what he does is he basically saves the slaves that don't get sold because they have some sort of infirmity or they're sick or they're old and would otherwise be killed. So it's politics and it's, it's ethics and it's morality surrounding this is so confused. Yeah, I can't decide if this is the intended read or if the politics, like you say, is just so confusing. It's the only thing that makes any sense. But the sort of implied read from the film is that like, slavery and slave trading is a morally bankrupt thing because it puts you into contact with such horrible people that it drags your soul down by association. Brother Francois kind of almost directly states that at one point, which is super weird, <laughs> that like it's a black business with black people in it. It's real fucked up. Yeah. So yeah, I understand why it has a 13% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's also that section drags on for so long. It's like a full 40 minutes of the movie. This movie, by the way, is a full hour too long. Yes. It's two and a half hours, almost. Yeah, that section does drag on for so long, particularly given the fact that there's nothing in it that's addressed that needs to be addressed. Yeah. And in 40 minutes, you could somehow go back to like... 
I don't know, Anthony arriving there and his plan is to get the money and not to be a slave trader, but that he ends up being one and he debauches his soul for whatever reason. But it's just cut to three years later when his hair is like a mess and he's sweaty and drunk all the time. And he's gone mad with money, I guess. Yeah, I guess. But he's talking about how he doesn't have enough. And then, like, literally the only plot line the movie cares about resolving is that Brother Francois forgives him. Everything else is just immediately dropped. Like, I guess that all just takes care of itself. Yeah, I guess so. And in an otherwise good movie, this would drag the score for this down really, really hard. In a movie that is otherwise a goddamn mess... I mean, honestly, like the only parts of it that I really found to be interesting or that would catch my attention is if I knew that Don Luis and Faith were coming back because they would like, you know, twirl their mustache and and rub their hands together and be hilariously broad villains. Yeah, there's a whole sequence where they like try and push his carriage off a cliff in the Alps. You really get this sense if there's more of this novel that they are gonna like snidely whiplash try and sink his boat in the Mississippi or some shit for the next 700 pages. And like that would be fun. I'm definitely <laughs> curious to find at least the outline of this novel novel because I want to know how it is, if it is better, how it is better. Frank Nugent, who was the New York Times film critic in 1936, wrote this, which is quoted on the Wikipedia article. Speaking for ourselves, we founded a bulky, rambling, and indecisive photoplay, which has not merely taken liberties with the letter of the original, but with its spirit. For all its sprawling length, the novel was cohesive and well-rounded. Most of its picaresque quality has been lost in the screen version. Its philosophy is vague, its characterization blurred, and its story so loosely knit and episodic that its telling seems interminable. A few years back, we devoted the better part of a British weekend to the reading of Mr. Allen's little pamphlet, and we enjoyed it. Yesterday, we spent only a fraction more than two hours watching its progress on the screen, and we squirmed like a small boy in Sunday school. That paragraph one nails the movie. Philosophy is vague. Characterization is blurred. And the story is so loosely knit and episodic that it seems interminable. But I want to know, like, oh, I read a thousand page book in a weekend and I really enjoyed it. And I'm like, oh, so I guess the book is better. <laughs> Though also it's wild to me that apparently the like novel itself does not have a Wikipedia page. No, and that's the most frustrating thing and what will probably end up with me finally caving in and reading a thousand page book. <laughs> <laughs> Is I can't find the review, or the review, the outline of it on Wikipedia, as if there are no other places on the internet. So I'm going back and forth between a one and a two on this one. Yeah, I, hmm, I'm gonna have to give it a one. I'm gonna go with a one as well, and here is my justification for going just past the, like, this was a bad racist film, too, to a one, which is, our catchphrase is, this was a movie, and this wasn't a movie. It was the first half of a movie, and it was already two and a half hours long. <laughs> and that half a movie was extremely bad. So it was half of a two movie. I mean, the parts that were not the 40 minutes of horribly confusing racism were not good. And no amount of dedicated acting from Frederick March could pull it out of that tailspin. Yeah. I'll say in its favor that it was not so bad it broke our rating system. Yeah, that's true. We've had some that have, but like, 
when I imagined watching a bad movie for this project, this is pretty much what I imagined, and it's real bad. The direction is cheesy, the writing is a mess. There's some very good-looking golden age of Hollywood actors doing their damnedest to make it entertaining, and in some cases, for certain minutes, succeeding. Uh, And it is totally fucked up and racist. So, like, this is kind of the quintessential movie to put through the screen test of time. And it definitely does not pass (laughs) at all. Should you watch it? No. No. No caveats. (laughs) Yeah, no. I was going to try and make some joke about traveling back in time to when watching it might have encouraged them to make a sequel that made this a less shitty movie. But like, no, don't reward them for making this. Just kill Hitler. (laughs) Yeah, if you're going to 1936, like, that's the option here. Yeah, I mean, even if you made a sequel that fleshed out the rest of the story because it doesn't address the whole mess in Africa, like, what is Anthony's moral and philosophical and spiritual journey? There isn't one. There isn't one because you don't get to that part of the book. Well, and also because you don't get that part of it in the parts that it does get to. Like, it gets to the part about the slave trade, but apparently a bunch of that is cut from what is in the book. There's a lot that happens between Havana and three years later. That section is such a disaster that it definitely, like, one of the ways it's a disaster is you can feel them trying to figure out ways to give Anthony a moral out. And, like, all of them are just make it worse. Yeah. that They're all like, well, it's just about the greed, really. And it's like, really? He's willing to sell people for, like, that's, that helps nothing, my man. Yeah, I could see the book dealing with that at length in a way that actually grapples with him doing this thing that he can maybe never find forgiveness for. Instead of a dude he literally just got killed going, don't worry, Jesus is fine with all of this because you feel bad. That is not actually grappling with it at all. Oh, I forgot something which is so minor that it's almost not worth mentioning except that... The Scottish accent that Bonnie Feather has, because he's apparently a Scottish merchant who for some reason lives in Northern Italy. Right. Was the worst Scottish accent I've ever heard in my entire life. You do think he's like going to drop it at any moment and reveal the con, but then he just dies. The Scottish joke character in Austin Powers, like that accent was so much better. Because this one is not only like, It's not only bad and a horrible caricature, it's inconsistent and also not, not even identifiable as Scottish. It's just like, why is he talking so weird? He sounds kind of like the leprechaun for the Lucky Charms commercial. Yeah, yeah. It's really bad. But also it's like the least egregious of the egregious things in this movie, so I forgot to mention it until now. But yeah, this movie sucks. Don't watch it. Next week, though, we're watching another Shakespeare. And the good news is this time I don't really love the play, so I won't be giving line-by-line notes <laughs> on on how they did. I mean, I do love the play, but I also feel like we don't have to go that deep into it because most people know Romeo and Juliet, at least, like... I mean, most people are familiar with this play, even if they don't know all of the lines to it. 
I'm a little trepidatious about it for a number of reasons. It is wild to me that reading this, that Basil Rathbone was originally the Romeo on Broadway for the like Broadway revival that they were kind of basing this off. I can't imagine Basil Rathbone as Romeo. Also, Orson Welles was apparently the Tybalt in that, which honestly seems way better than Basil Rathbone as Tybalt. Yeah. Uh, but it's also directed by George Cukor, who did David Copperfield. Good boy. And John Barrymore is playing Mercutio and is about 30 years too old at this point to be playing Mercutio, so... You look at the, like, the John Barrymore-Leslie Howard thing, and they all look like they're, like, 45-year-old dads angry about, like, the game. <laughs> And not, like, 16-year-olds who are, like, in the heat of passion. Yeah. Uh, so join us next week when we probably will not like the movie either. Yeah. But I feel like I'll at least have something more to say about it because I'm very familiar with the play and there's, like, a million adaptations of it that we can compare it to. And it almost certainly won't be horribly racist. God, I was just- I'm just- I'm- sorry, I just looked over at the Wikipedia page- and realized Tale of Two Cities was in this year. And that feels like a million years ago. It feels like we watched that at the dawn of time. <laughs> I mean, I think that it feels that way because uh, it was just a good movie that was a respite from the long nightmare of 1935. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But like, also just like, God, this has been... For a year with less movies than 1935, 1936 has really been a slog. Yeah, I haven't felt that way about it, but I think part of it is that I still feel a tremendous amount of lightness to be out of 1935. That's that's fair. It's not even that, like, it definitely hasn't been as bad as 1935. It's just been like, oh boy, another one of these, huh? F films. What are you going to do? I, I have some bad news for you about the next, like, yeah. 15 years of your life, David. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm hoping that we watch some that don't make me feel that way at some point again in the future. Yeah, I, we probably will. And we apparently have one more William Powell Myrna Loy before the end of the year that maybe won't have a blackface sequence and uh, some nonsensical sexism. I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put my money on it, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd kiss a death. All right. So, uh, we will see you next week for Romeo and Juliet. And until then, this was not a movie. It was one third to one half of a movie, and we're gonna have to read a summary to figure it out. We'll get back to you at some point. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody.